The Energy Gang is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. In fact, it's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's Keiko, K-A-C-O-newenergy.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. We've been hearing a lot about record-breaking prices in utility-scale solar. We'll get ready for more records in offshore wind. In the last two months, we've seen offshore project developers in Europe bidding for pennies per kilowatt hour. Now the Europeans want to export that learning to America. Then Energy Secretary Rick Perry wants to know if renewable energy is a danger to America's grid, and he's asking his staff to study it. And finally, Plug Power's deal with Amazon. It's not just about fuel cells, it's about dominance in the ultra-competitive retail sector. So after we took a week off, it's great to be joined again by my co-hosts. Good to hear their voices again in Washington, D.C., of course, it's Catherine Hamilton with 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine. Hi. Beautiful spring day here in Washington, D.C. Is every day a spring day in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> yes, in my world it is. <laughs> in New York City, actually, Jigger's not in New York City. He's out in San Francisco. He surprised us. He's on the West Coast. Maybe it's a beautiful spring day out there. I don't know. You've had a lot of rain. Hey, Jigger, how's it going? Good. It's always beautiful weather here in San Francisco. Although I did hear from our investors that uh, that they're still skiing. There's still like five, six feet of snow in um, in at their ski resorts. I went to Mount Washington this weekend, Tuckerman's Ravine, and hiked up to the very top of the mountain and skied all the way down. So there's still snow here in New England too. So Mount Washington is actually one of the windiest places on the planet. And uh, that actually feeds in nicely to our first topic. We're going to talk about offshore wind. Just a few days ago, Germany held an offshore wind auction for over 1,500 megawatts of project capacity. Four bids were accepted at an average price of €4 Euro cents per kilowatt hour. We've seen similar pricing in Denmark and the Netherlands. And in the UK, the government said last month that prices for offshore projects are coming in below what they expected to see in 2020. The cost of building an offshore wind farm has dropped around one-third in Europe in just the last few years. Installation techniques are getting better, and the turbines and the blades are getting much bigger. Jigger, what exactly are we witnessing here? How important is this moment for offshore wind when we look at these prices that are getting bid? Well, for a second there, I just needed to make sure that this wasn't the impact of National Weed Day today. Uh, um, it is 420, yes. <laughs> I mean, maybe but, we're all know, a little stoned and the uh, <laughs> offshore wind prices are a lot higher and we're just imagining things. But, you know, look, I've said this before in this podcast and I'll say it again here. The Europeans absolutely want to overpay for technology to get the cost down for us, which is great. You know, they did that in solar. They did that in 
onshore wind, now they're doing it on offshore wind. The U.S. has built only one offshore wind plant, and the vast majority of our offshore wind capacity is going to benefit from this extraordinary amount of development that uh, the Europeans are undertaking in offshore wind. And it's, you know, kudos to them, and I really want to thank them for it. Since really the early 90s, Denmark started supporting this sector, you know, when when wind turbines were like part of tractor components, they were made up of equipment from the agricultural sector, and they started experimenting with offshore turbines. And then as the U.S. started grappling with the the build out of Cape Wind, the Europeans doubled down and got really serious. And since then, they've developed 13 gigawatts of projects, and we're now seeing record prices. So this isn't about the Europeans saying, oh, yeah, we want to drop the cost for everybody. This is about them having a a much higher price threshold and saying, we want to dominate this industry. And hey, guess what? The companies that are dominating this space are now European companies, and they're going to come over here and reap the benefits. Right. I mean, look, I think when you think about the US, we do the same thing in drug prices, right? We have tons of subsidies through the National Institutes of Health, and we say it, it supports our industry, and we export those drugs around the world. And Siemens, Investus, and other companies, I think, are really taking the lead in um, offshore wind technology, and they're going to reap the rewards of that, which is good. I want to thank my European colleagues. Well, and I think there are a few factors. So in addition to these low reverse auction bids, you know, they're getting the wholesale power price plus whatever they bid. So in some cases, they've even bid zero EUs, but they still get the wholesale power price. And they are getting free um, onshore and offshore interconnection and, and subsea cable connection. So that's kind of the benefit that they're getting. But in addition to competitive auctions, which kind of then also takes away the need for feed-in tariffs, there's been a step change in turbine size. So turbines are a lot bigger. Um, there's a higher load factor for offshore than there is for onshore because the winds are more constant. And also there's rising investor confidence. So that all of those factors combined are allowing them to be competitive. And I, you can see then that being competitive in the U.S. would be less of a reach even without that auction. Yes. So there has been um, some decent reporting on these auctions, but I think generally – a lot of folks have gotten this wrong. The way you described it is exactly right, Catherine, but a number of publications have said that this is subsidy-free offshore wind electricity. In fact, the New York Times had a piece last week saying that Germany, for the first time, was supporting subsidy-free offshore wind. Um, that is just not true. First of all, again, these prices come on top of uh, established wholesale prices. Uh, secondly, Germany and other European countries have basically said that they will build out the transmission themselves and that utilities have to offtake the electricity from these offshore wind farms. So the developers themselves have zero risk when it comes to building out transmission. And of course, those transmission lines are supported by ratepayers and taxpayers. And there's just far less risk across the board for European developers than there is here in the United States. And so saying subsidy-free offshore wind power is wrong, but in fact, it is low-subsidy offshore wind power, and it's certainly competitively priced power, at least in Europe. Yeah, I think that's right. And I do think that this framework that Europe has put together does put their developers at a disadvantage when they work in the U.S. and India and other places, because you do find that the government really does work more hand-in-hand -hand with um, the developers in Europe than they do in places in the U.S. and other places. Yeah, that's 
probably the most interesting point, whether or not we can recreate the same offshore wind boom in the United States. I recently had a good conversation with Alicia Barton, who's the former CEO of Mass CEC. Um, she worked at Sun Edison. She's a, a lawyer who specializes in clean tech. She's been around in the sector for a while and very early on recognized the need to put the infrastructure in place for offshore wind. And a lot of folks now believe that the European companies, well, they don't believe, they are actually seeing that the European companies are eyeing the U.S. market, Massachusetts and New York in particular, and saying, okay, there's starting to be some policy interest and the infrastructure is getting built out a little bit. We're ready to start thinking about building projects here and bidding on leases. Um, the question is whether the successes can be recreated in those states because really the developers are out on their own. And so I just wonder if either of you have any thoughts on that, whether um, whether we're you know comparing apples with oranges when we look to the the similarities and differences between the U.S. and European markets. There really isn't a U.S. market, let's be fair. So, Well, the way we do business in the U.S. is dramatically different than the way they do business in Europe. I mean, Europe really is about giving people very low cost of capital, right? 5%, 6% interest rates because all the risks have been taken out, taken out through government contracts and mandatory purchase agreements and that kind of stuff. Whereas in the U.S., it really is more of... A free market where, you know, so for the very low risk contracts with utility companies, you do get the same interest rates. But for um, higher risk contracts or distributed generation contracts, you're generally paying eight, nine, 10 percent interest rates, which I think is the way the free market should work. So I'm not opposed to that. But I think separately, I do think that that there are many opportunities for coastal cities to sign power purchase agreements directly with these offshore wind farms. And I do think that this concept of corporate PPAs and now moving to municipal PPAs um, will actually help accelerate these offshore wind farms on the East Coast. Yeah, and as states put mandates um, like Maryland and their renewable and portfolio standard has a 2.5% mandate for offshore by 2020, um, they're going to need those incentives because the, the production tax credit, the expiration of it um, after 2019 is not great for offshore because it doesn't give them much of um, much of a timeline. Um, you can, of course, take the investment tax credit in lieu of the production tax credit to get that up front, but it's still these projects take so much longer to develop. Um, and there, there's there's such a permitting process that um, you need some other types of incentives to be put into place. That seems to be the biggest risk. And in fact, if you compare the experiences of the few states that are actually considering offshore wind, you can see how important public policy is. So not just federal tax policy, but actual state targets. New York and Massachusetts have specifically said, we want lots of offshore wind, and they're you know hoping for hundreds, if not thousands of megawatts of projects. And they're setting a framework in place for developers to be able to sell that power to utilities um, as part of a target. Meanwhile, in North Carolina, where there um, were some lease areas that were recently auctioned off to European companies, to Avangrid, which is a company, a subsidiary of Iberdrola, there were a number of people in North Carolina after that auction who said, yeah, it was great that we saw competition, but we're not going to get anything built for a decade or more because there's literally zero public policy here in North Carolina that gives developers any certainty. So they're just going to kind of sit on 
that um, that leasehold. And uh, it just goes to show you that there's still such an extraordinary public policy component to this. The states, the few states that are really ambitious are going to be the ones that see the initial projects. And even then, they're not going to come for years. Yeah, but I, I, given the costs of offshore wind and how fast they're coming down, I don't think they're going to be very expensive in 2020 or 2022. And so I, I don't you know, I'm sort of somebody who has gotten tired of the tax credit framework that the United States has developed. And I actually don't think it's a bad thing for the state of Maryland or Massachusetts or New York to pay $100 a megawatt hour for power. And I think they're willing to do that. Well, I'm not saying that the tax credit is always going to be the optimal policy. But whatever it is, whether or not you have some sort of interconnection guarantee whether there are guarantees for offtake agreements, there are certain things that you need to put into place to provide consistency, and a state like North Carolina doesn't have any of those. So it doesn't have to be just tax policy. At the same time, I don't know that we can say that those, just because the prices are dropping in Europe, we're going to see those same price drops in the U.S. We need to get projects in the ground now and get some learning now in order to start seeing $100 a megawatt hour projects here in the U.S. because it's all very localized. You have to have the port infrastructure. You have to have um, ships because of the Jones Act. You, you can't just bring over European ships to operate in U.S. waters. There are localized needs here that mean we're not going to see dramatic price drops right away. Yeah. And also remember the jurisdiction for offshore, the Outer Continental Shelf Development for Renewable Energy is with the Department of Energy's Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. So they're the ones that have to run this commercial leasing process. And they do assist. They help on planning and analysis. They help with lease issuance. They help with site assessment and construction and operations for all of these projects. But it is a federal authority that um, that every project needs to go through for the Outer Continental Shelf. Well, certainly a landmark moment for offshore wind in Europe, and um, we will start to see some of those learnings applied here to the U.S. market, even though there are still plenty of differences. One final stat I think is important to mention before we move on to the um, second topic, and that is the levelized cost of energy for offshore wind projects in the U.K., has dropped to about $125 a megawatt hour, again, before 2020 estimates, and the levelized cost of energy for the Hinkley Point C nuclear reactor is going to be $187 a megawatt hour, and that'll get built in the next 7, 10 years. So lots of learning still left to be done in offshore wind. And um, one more dramatic example of how different the technology landscape will look when a big nuclear reactor like Hinkley Point C comes online. This is the moment of the show when we stop the tape and talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. We are grateful to have Keiko as a sponsor. Keiko New Energy is one of the fastest growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. Leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. 
You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. Thanks for their support. While governor of Texas, Rick Perry oversaw one of the country's first major wind booms. He also oversaw a dramatic expansion of fracking. Today, natural gas and wind are putting pressure on coal and nuclear power plants. And now Perry, the newly minted Secretary of Energy, wants to know if those same subsidies he supported are disrupting the power system. Hint, yes, there is a lot of disruption. The question is, how are they disrupting the power sector? On Friday, Secretary Perry sent a request to his staff. He wants a report on his desk in 60 days that will look at how wholesale markets are changing and whether renewable energy subsidies are speeding those changes at the expense of baseload power plants. The memo was only a page and a half long, but it was packed with a lot of assumptions, which we are going to try to unpack here. Catherine, what did this memo call for exactly, and what's its significance? Yeah, so first let me just put in perspective that uh, Brian McCormick is the chief of staff for the Department of Energy, and he recently came from Edison Electric Institute, EEI. And so this looks like something EEI would have been very supportive of it and would have worked hard to get through DOE. So that's kind of the background on this. You know, no confirmation there, just saying this looks like a lot about what the you know, investor-owned utilities are asking as well. And basically, it has statements like, a re- reliable and resilient electric system is essential to protecting public health and fostering economic growth and job creation, that baseload power is necessary to a well-functioning grid. Um, a lot of the underlying statements here are basically saying, in order to have a reliable and resilient grid, you need to have strong baseload power. So they want to look at what is baseload affordable baseload power look like? Is it being somehow threatened, especially coal and nuclear power? And so the way that this memo is set up is really leading to, you know, answers that would say, oh, yes, it's very important to have baseload power, whereas, you know, we can discuss how that doesn't always work out well. And in many instances, more flexible resources are going to be much more resilient and stable than baseload. Yeah, there are actually a lot of good questions to be asking here. What is the role of specific technology support in impacting the broader market, particularly in the wholesale markets where Europe has seen a lot of turmoil, and now we're starting to see the same story play out in the United States? And and also, the idea of baseload is an important one to consider as well. Last week, we featured our conversation with Jesse Jenkins, who outlined the concept of flexible baseload power and the need to consider a certain set of technologies to get us beyond 50% decarbonization to 80% to 100%. So there are actually really good questions in here. The question is how Perry is framing this. And it is a very leading document. You can tell that he sort of knows or wants to know what the answers will be. Uh, and, And for example, in some of the language, he says, regulatory burdens introduced by previous administrations that were designed to decrease coal fired power generation have destroyed jobs and economic growth and threatened to undercut the performance of the grid well into the future. So that is is uh that that's a statement that is not a, a question he is very clearly asking for the department to prove what he thinks is happening 
Yeah. And so a couple things. One is because of his April 19th date that he wants this report in hand, this could potentially feed into a conversation that FERC is having on May 1st and 2nd, a technical conference to look at, you know, wholesale markets, capacity markets, energy and capacity markets to look at what is going on on state versus federal jurisdiction and what can participate. At the same time, though, there's some other things that are going on at DOE. So it, it may be less coordinated than we than you would assume based on the memo. One is that DOE is holding with the Cybel Energy Institute a future markets workshop in July. Um, and they're looking for abstracts by May 12th, which is looking at flexibility and saying, all right, what is what is flexibility look like? What are all of the different ways that consumers can interact? What are the policy and regulatory processes that need to be put into place for flexibility on our grid? So I think that there are a lot of things going on at DOE. I don't know that they're completely coordinated. I think they will all feed into the way we're thinking about how markets need to evolve and how they are evolving in real time. Um, but it sort of remains to be seen what will come out of this report. I'm shocked that the Trump administration is not coordinated. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, in all seriousness, do you actually think that Rick Perry and DOE should be more coordinated because of his experience in the governor's office? Or do you think that this is just a feature of this administration where everyone is sort of out for themselves and there is no coordination? I mean, I don't think that they've staffed up a lot of their leadership at DOE. So I actually do think that they're not there that many people there thinking about these issues. I mean, there's still some staff that are in place working on them on the ground. But on a leadership level for coordination, I think you're right that that's not really there. Well, the question of coordination is quite interesting to me because in the last few years of the Obama administration, the Department of Energy across almost all of its departments that had anything to do with electricity talked pretty explicitly about the grid edge transition. So their investment thesis, their research theses, they all kind of fed into this idea that the grid was changing, it was becoming more distributed, it was going to cause turmoil, and we need to figure out how to support reliability within the context of the rapidly changing distributed grid. And um, this is a dramatic reversal. Whether or not it turns into policy and whether or not it's coordinated at all, it's still a pretty dramatic reversal and is a contrast to the coordinated effort of the Obama administration to talk about the transition that we, of course, discuss every week on this show. So I, you know, I mean, as someone who's worked with DOE for a very long time, um, I mean, DOE was really, I would say, particularly on the grid side, anti-renewables for the better part of 10 years. I think really Andy Karzner, I think, led the charge under George W. Bush to actually force them to be less anti-renewables. And the Obama administration sort of took their time to get coordinated, but then, you know, got there at the end. But I think this study is actually a great opportunity, right? I mean, I ultimately think what's going to come out of this study is you know, a greater understanding by Rick Perry that there's literally nothing the Trump administration can do to reverse the trend. And short of, you know, basically paying these coal plants to stay in business, which is what First Energy has been asking the Ohio Public Service Commission for and has been rejected multiple times. And so in some ways, I think it's a good thing that they're doing this because it'll shed light on, on how impossible the task is to save the coal industry. Jigger, I could not disagree more with that. Um, I don't necessarily think it's going to be a bad thing because a lot of these reports tend to sit on shelves. 
But what it does feed into is the potential conversation around tax reform. And so within 60 days, if you get this report that focuses exclusively on subsidies and cherry picks the subsidies that support renewable energy without looking broadly at the subsidies that have propped up conventional power, then you get this skewed report, this garbage in, garbage out report that doesn't sort of holistically look at the entire picture and just tells Rick Perry that renewable energy subsidies, particularly tax policies, are skewing power markets, and therefore we should suggest to members of Congress that we get rid of them. Now, whether or not that produces actionable policy... I think that's a great fight. I mean, that would be such an amazing fight. Could you imagine the Trump administration coming out and saying, we'd like to get rid of wind and solar policy, um, and then having all these Republican senators and congressmen saying... That's the number one job creator in my county the last, like, you know, five years. I mean, when you look at Tom Kiernan's tweets and all the stuff that he's coming out with right now, the wind energy has been on fire in terms of talking about their economic development stuff, et cetera. It's amazing how suddenly our industry has actually gotten their big boy pants on and has figured out how to promote themselves. I would love that fight. And I would love for this to be another black eye in the Trump administration's inability to do anything. Yeah, I mean, you're you're supposing first that tax reform in a real way is going to happen, and that second that that these credits are going to be used at all. I mean, it, Congress, the members of Congress that don't like renewable credits, they don't need DOE to tell them why they don't like renewable energy credits. They're not going to change. Those are going to still be out there. But I think, I mean, these these credits are already phasing down. I just don't think that that's that that's going to be a major uh, piece of it. I mean, certainly they're going to have maybe some more talking points for the people who don't like it. But I still think that those will hold tight. What I think what it's going to do is move us a little past renewables. I think we need to. I think we need to look at all flexible resources holistically. For example, demand response. I know this sounds like very untechnical, but during the polar vortex, baseload did not appear. They It didn't show up because all the natural gas was being diverted to heat homes. And instead, Demand response had to show up and save the grid and did the same thing in ERCOT. So when we look at flexible resources and what's out there that can really make the grid resilient and reliable, we have to look at a whole host of things, not just renewables, but storage and demand response and efficiency and everything kind of working together. And I think the more that we can work on that conversation holistically, the better it is for everybody, because that really does push us to how do we function on the grid rather than what is it specifically that is on the grid? Yeah, both. Both of those are really good points. And I definitely agree that I'm making a lot of political assumptions about how this report could be used. And I do agree that it opens up a really interesting conversation about the diversity of technologies. Um, I do see a couple of other good things coming out of this. Now, let's assume that this is a an objective report. And they do look at the swath of subsidies, both for conventional power and renewable power, and how that distorts markets. If you get a clear idea of how to compare subsidies over time and the you know direct and indirect subsidies, which I don't think this report is going to do, but let's assume that they're taking an objective look and attempting to do that, that is great. We want to know how policy support distorts or pushes markets. So I wholeheartedly support that. The question is how political this document becomes and what the assumptions are going into it. Oh, it's still going to be a hatchet job. Let's be honest. This is not going to be an objective review. But the beauty is, is that like, I think Catherine's exactly right. I thought the podcast last week was 
covered a lot of that that you and Shale and Jesse Jenkins did. And then Jesse and I actually had a big Twitter conversation yesterday about all these things. I mean, the one thing is, as, as someone who you know took a lot of classes in power engineering in college, to be clear, baseload is not a defined term in any literature, in any place, in the engineering spectrum, right? And the reason for that is because these power plants, particularly thermal power plants, have an extraordinary amount of unplanned outages for unplanned maintenance. And so there is no such thing as baseload power. So I just want to make sure all of our listeners understand that that term is not defined. It is made up by reporters and it is just completely not used in engineering <laughs> at all. Of making it up. <laughs> right? Just making sure that everyone understands that. I think Jesse has done a good job of trying to figure out how to create new nomenclature, which Catherine has also been doing around fast ramp, you know, technologies, flexible technologies, yeah, and, he calls and that it kind flexible of stuff. Flexible baseload, I think. And those technologies do not have to have the feature of burning fuel. Though, and that's the argument I was having with Jesse politely on Twitter yesterday, which is that those technologies could be demand response and load control, which Ohm Connect and others are trying to do in the residential sector now, O-Power, et cetera, which, you know, Enernoc has been doing for years. And as Catherine said, it was Enernoc's um, prowess that really saved us during the polar vortex. It was not those generators because many of them were shut down or didn't have enough natural gas supply to run during the polar vortex. And so I really do think it matters that we all get a little bit more fluent in all of these technologies and recognize that this isn't going to be a natural gas future, that I truly believe that this tech is way cheaper than keeping natural gas plants around using very expensive capacity payments. Well, we've got 60 days, and then this report will be out, likely. I am fascinated at how this is going to come out. Um, we're all going to be kind of eagerly awaiting this one. But there's tons of literature out there, too, on grid integration costs, on the historical impact of subsidies and the in comparative subsidies between conventional generators and renewables. Um, and, you know, when you look at Texas, for example, a report from the Brattle Group a couple years ago showed that it was 50 cents a megawatt hour for wind to integrate wind into the Texas grid. Um, PJM, like two or three weeks ago, released this report once again, updating its assumptions about how much wind and solar it, and natural gas it could handle on the grid. And it showed that it could maintain, quote, unprecedented levels of wind and solar resources, assuming a portfolio of other resources that provides a sufficient amount of reliability services. Again, distributed energy resources like demand response, um, load controllers, natural gas, uh, co-generation, like a wide swath of resources, they could integrate a ton of renewable energy cost effectively and reliably. And so there's tons of literature and experience out there that already gets to the heart of what the Perry DOE is trying to do now. Okay, I think we've sufficiently covered that theoretical report. Let's go on to a real business deal. Amazon's latest product announcement isn't a new home device or a fancy new web service. It's a fuel cell a device designed to get those products off the shelf and to your door faster. Well, Amazon isn't making the fuel cells itself, of course. It's partnering with Plug Power for up to $600 million worth of fuel cells for its forklifts, with an option of owning nearly a quarter of the company down the road. So Jigger mentioned this briefly at the end of our show a couple weeks back, 
and his firm, Generate Capital, has invested in plug powers deployments with Walmart for fuel cell forklift operations. And this deal is important for a couple of reasons. Plug Power has been around for a while, and they've had some pretty high highs and pretty low lows. Like every other fuel cell firm, profitability has been elusive. So this is important for Plug's prospects. And secondly, this investment by Amazon is a pretty big competitive deal, as we'll have Jigger explain as well. Um, Jigger actually wrote about this on his LinkedIn page. And uh, Matthew Klippenstein and Auto and fuel cell expert wrote about this at GTM. Basically, by trying to force out lead-acid batteries, fuel cells can make warehouse operations a lot more efficient, and you can open up more space. And you know, at a time when competition between these mega retailers is getting more intense, Amazon sees this as a, you know an easy way to improve its bottom line. It's also a way to spite Walmart, potentially, the world's biggest retailer, which has been working with Plug Power. So Jigger, remind us who exactly is Plug Power. It produces proton exchange membrane fuel cells for handling applications like forklifts and also stationary applications. The company's been around since the late 90s. It saw a massive spike in its stock price in 2000 to around $1,400 a share and has since dropped way down and underperformed. But it, you know it's kind of chugged along. And now this Amazon deal is a reversal of fortunes. Where does it stack up with Plug Power's history? Wow. That's a tall order. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I tend to go a little deep on my questions I, uh, there. But yeah, just tell us who Plug Power is. Yeah, so Plug Power is a company that was formed in the 90s and then went public in 1999 during the dot-com boom and did have that um, that meteoric rise. I was at BP at the time, and we had this hydrogen interactive actually in Canada that was led by Jeff Rinker. And, um, you know, Plug was there, lots of other people were there. It was a pretty amazing time. Um, they then have gone through, I think, three or four cycles since then. But I think, you know, what's happened um, as of late, Plug is based in Albany, New York, has some technology that came out of General Electric and some other places. This particular technology really came out of Ballard. Um, and they bought the technology out of Ballard, and they've really reoriented the entire company around this technology. So I would say that the vast majority of their other applications, while important, are not really driving their revenues. It's really this one. And the thing that I love about this, and I honestly didn't know anything about this stuff until Generate invested in some of these deployments for Walmart, is that between 5 and 10% of the entire square footage of a warehouse, an average warehouse, is reserved for lead acid battery charging and forklifts and stuff. I mean, this is. I learned that for the first time too. I was completely amazed. It's nuts. And then I've talked to IKEA, I've talked to some of the other customers, and they're saying that this is literally the bane of their existence. There are entire days when enough lead acid batteries fail that they can't run their warehouse. So this is more a conversation of how much everyone in the entire country hates lead-acid batteries for warehouse applications, for forklifts, than it is really about fuel cells. Right, and so like, if you have a, an eight-hour shift, uh, Matthew Klippenstein mentioned this in his article, if you have an eight-hour shift, you see forklift speeds drop like 14%. 
in the second half of that eight-hour shift. So performance problem and a storage problem. Right. And so now, like as I've said multiple times, like clean energy technologies have to solve a pain point that can't be a vitamin pill. So this is definitely a pain point. People want to buy this because it's the, you know, the equivalent of pain medication. And so Walmart has been testing it and rolling it out slowly but steadily since 2006. And, um, and really accelerating their deployments in the last four years. So Amazon started with one location in October of last year. Um, it went really well. And they said, hey, we really want to build out this nationwide. And so let's do it. At the same time, the tax credit for fuel cells ran out at the end of 2016. And so they were saying, well, how do we make this work? And so this was really a creative way of making the numbers work was, you know, our interest rate, obviously, that we charge plug was more expensive. So Amazon said, hey, if we borrow money from our banks and pay cash for these items at a much lower interest rate, will you refund some of that money back by giving me stock in your company or warrants in their company? And because plug power was only worth, I think, 200 and. 40 million bucks or something like that, or 200 million bucks at the time, they had to give Amazon like 23% of their company to be able to make this transaction work. And I think that's basically how this deal got struck. So Jigger, um, you know, the, the fuel cells are part of those orphaned tax credits that did not get into the omnibus deal, um, to, like the solar and wind credits did. If those had been in it, would, would, would the economics have been better in this deal, or do you think it would have gone forward nonetheless? Well, I think Amazon, like many companies, are looking for a replacement to their lead-acid batteries. So I think that they would have moved forward anyway. But they may not have gone through the extraordinary effort of taking 23% of the company in warrants. They may have instead allowed someone like me to monetize the tax credits for them and finance the deployment using a PPA, which is similar to what Walmart's using. So this structure here is like, it's unique because of the tax credit situation and because of plug powers valuation. Like this is probably not something we'll see in future deals. Is this like a one-time thing? Yeah, I think that's right. There may be one other customer that gets this deal, but basically when you're offering someone who's worth $200 million a $600 million contract, you can imagine that aligning interests, which is what Amazon's really doing here, I think made a lot of sense both for Plug and for Amazon. I don't think this was just a give for Plug. I think also Plug now realizes that Amazon realizes that the value of that 23% stake is dependent upon that that stock price going up, right? So now Amazon has a vested interest in Plug Power being a healthy company. Do you agree with the argument that this is a way for Amazon to take control of the fuel cell supply chain and kind of embed itself into Walmart and other retailers supply chains. Like eventually if it starts owning more and more of plug power, then it can do as again, Matthew Klippenstein argued, which I thought was a really fascinating argument. It can do what it did with Amazon web services, which was basically control a whole different other industry and then embed itself into its competitors um, in pe competitors business in a way that they couldn't foresee. Does this do that in any way? Um, I thought Matthew's article, while interesting, was more science fiction than real. I think, I mean, for first, I mean, Amazon would have to actually buy Plug, 
right? The 23% stake doesn't give it a controlling stake, so it doesn't actually run Plug Power. Plug Power also has extraordinary contracts that they've partially announced in China because China is subsidizing um, you know, an amazing amount of, of, product, of deployment of fuel cells uh, in a big way. And so Plug is doing a lot of business there. So I don't know whether Amazon wants to do that, but it, it would be outside of, I think, what Amazon... Um, has done in the past. And so, you know, because it's web services is really, you know, sort of tech where, I mean, this is really hardware. And you and I both know that Plug has three or four competitors. They're not doing very well. So Plug really is, I think, on its own doing well. But if Amazon bought out Plug, my sense is those other competitors would suddenly get a bunch of love from Walmart and some of these other companies. Uh-huh. Then what does this mean for fuel cells generally? It's a it's been a really difficult space. Companies made a lot of promises. They haven't been able to drop costs. They've faced financial turmoil. As Eric Wessoff loves to write, the list of profitable public fuel cell companies is very short. It is zero. So um, what does this say about prospects for the fuel cell industry generally and the types of applications that can help these companies succeed? I, I talked to somebody in the fuel cell industry earlier today who said that they think that because Plug and others have done millions of refuelings and have really gotten folks real used to using hydrogen, that this will in the end help the larger hydrogen vehicle industry. So Toyota has taken a big stake with their Mirai car. And this seems like because hydrogen has been, people have been so slow to adopt it that because of some of what Plug and others have been doing, this will help um, kind of kind of grease the way for the vehicle industry. Yeah, so I also think that that is probably more fiction than fact. I, I look, the payback for Walmart on employing fuel cell forklifts is like two months, right? This is not like a PPA, Bloom Energy, whatever. Walmart has so much uh, difficulty with their lead acid forklifts that this is like a quick payback. Like they, like the guy at Walmart basically said to me when I was doing due diligence, this is the number one thing that we have done that has improved productivity at our warehouses in the last five years. That is a big thing for Walmart to say. I think there are a lot of other niche applications that are super, super cost-effective. Like, for instance, Travis Bradford is launching a fuel cell company uh, called Watt that does a 500-watt fuel cell for the home space, but it actually has combined heat and power built in for water heaters. I mean, it feels to me like there are some applications where you have like two-year paybacks, three-year paybacks, four-year paybacks, which is where fuel cells really need to be. I think this notion that fuel cells are going to make it on 10-year paybacks, um, you know, using the largesse of the government subsidy regime, I think those days are gone. And it's really more about this other piece. Automotive could work, but only if I think the fuel cell could actually from your car could power your house, which I'm not quite sure the Mirai is doing yet. Well, it sure as heck ain't the hydrogen economy, but good news for fuel cells. And uh, if anyone's going to make this happen, it's going to be Amazon and Walmart, which are also, I believe, customers of stationary fuel cells like Bloom. Um, I think that about does it for the conversation. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know. And Catherine, I'll go to you first. What's your story? 
Yeah, so I have two quick things. One is that the General Assembly of Maryland just passed a 30% tax credit for energy storage. And when we think about tax credits for storage, they really only exist um, right now in conjunction with solar, unless the IRS issues some guidance to really kind of suss that out. Um, So on the federal side, we just really haven't had anything for storage, but states are starting to look at it. And it's great news that Maryland has has, uh, passed this bill. We'll, We'll make sure it gets to the governor's desk. And the other thing is, I just wanted to put a plug in for National Park Week. And it is free park entrance to every national park for this week. And there's a park in every state. So you have no excuse you can get out to a national park in the United States. Sorry for those of you who aren't in the United States, but come visit. Um, Earth Day is April 22nd, this Saturday, and it's a good time to get out to your park. That's easy for you. You can just go look at the cherry blossoms and get down to the park there. I can go to Roosevelt Island, one of my favorite places. Oh, that is absolutely one of my favorite places in D.C., yes. Jigger, what park are you going to go to? Well, I'll be at the National Mall this Sunday uh, or Saturday um, speaking at their March for Science. And um, I'm I'm also at the Smithsonian Museum um, Earth Day Conference, the Earth Optimism Conference. And so um, look forward to seeing many of you there. And if you, you know, see me, then... Uh, give me a shout out. But the article I want to talk about was, um, I love Jess uh, Schenkelman's work at uh, Bloomberg. And um, she has this extraordinary article about just how many coal plants are scheduled to be shut down in Europe over the next five years. We talk about it in the US all the time. But it is just mind blowing to see, I think there's like seven countries in Europe that will be going coal free by 2020 or 2021. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. A few ones for me. Again, as Jigger mentioned, it's 420. So for anybody who's in the marijuana growing business, go back and listen to our episode with Tim Hayde, where we talk about microgrids for marijuana growing. That's a very relevant episode for today. Secondly, we've got uh, some live shows coming up. They're going to be at the Solar Summit on May 18th in Scottsdale, Arizona. That's our 10th anniversary. We've been doing that conference for 10 years. We've also got um, an extra day, the Software Summit, which is going to be really fantastic. And then our Grid Edge World Forum. We're doing another um, live energy gang about changes at the Grid Edge, whatever news happens to be relevant that week on June 28th. That's in uh, San Jose. So go to greentechmedia.com slash events to learn more. And then I have a story that I wanted to talk about quickly. You might have heard about this coal museum in a small Kentucky town going solar because it's going to save, you know, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars yearly in energy costs from the grid. Now, Kentucky is 97% coal, by the way. So an extraordinary story. It went viral. And it's just this sweet sweet anecdote that um, encapsulated the moment of transition we're in. But then New York Times columnist Tom Friedman comes along, a guy with one of the biggest soapboxes in the world, and he ruins it. This week, he ran an editorial about why Trump is ignoring the clean energy transition, you know, the transition away from coal. But instead of clearly laying out you know, the crazy growth in solar jobs and the improvement in the economics of distributed energy. He goes off on this tangent about Syria and about dismantling budgets and Trump being unpresidential. And it's like this totally Tom Friedman thing to do. And it's an extraordinary example of how to botch a storytelling opportunity. I mention it because I read a lot. I like to read 
good and bad writing. And we on this show talk a lot about the importance of good communication. Um, And if you want to know what not to do, if you're trying to argue your case, read this column from Tom Tom Friedman. It's called Coal Museum Sees the Future, Trump Doesn't. I was just really appalled by it. I thought it was probably one of the worst pieces of writing I can think of trying to argue to a mass audience of why this transition is important. You know, the other thing that just happened, which I think is extraordinary, is a big coal company just planned with EDF to build a 100 megawatt um, solar farm. Yeah, right in the coal mine. Yeah, it's just, it's, (laughs) it's, like, I mean, he could have tied that in. He could have tied lots of stuff in and he just, he missed the boat. But, you know, I still love Tom. The Lexus and the Olive Tree is such a great book. All right. Well, that's a positive note to end on, even though I was really down on, on that piece. I do recommend you go check it out. Big thanks to all of you for listening. Big thanks to my co-hosts, Jigger and Catherine. And thanks to Keiko New Energy for supporting this show. They've been a dedicated sponsor. and We do appreciate their support. You've got access to hundreds of our shows in the archives on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, NPR One, any podcast app of your choice. You can access us on Twitter or through email, podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Twitter is probably a better place for it. Email can get a little bit tough, but we really do want to hear from you. And of course, if you can um, rate us and review us on iTunes or on stitcher it's so helpful for getting people to like see this show and pass the link along word of mouth is really important for podcasts and i'm sure that you have colleagues and friends who want to geek out about energy and learn about the latest in u.s and international news and energy and clean tech and and environment during this very strange time so please just pass us along Catherine, enjoy your spring day there, your perpetually spring day there in D.C. Thanks, you too. Jigger, enjoy the West Coast. Travel safe. We'll catch you next week. Yes, and I hope that Brian McCormick is listening and is going to take notes at our Grid Edge live show later for his report. Well, we've got a ton of utilities and folks in the power sector coming to that event, so... Um, they'll be there for the spirited discussion on stage for the Energy Gang and everything else. And we look forward to that. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.